Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today you're in for a real treat, because I'm going to play a recording of last Monday night's live salon with Eric Davis. And although Eric and I have known one another for a long time now, well, we really haven't had much of a chance in recent years to visit very often. And so it was really refreshing for me to see how easily we slipped back into a casual conversation. And while I'm not going to give something away about what Eric has to say here, but I am going to let you know that if you listen really closely to a brief comment that he makes about the psychedelic community early on in this conversation, well, then you're going to better understand the important message that he closes with. It's something that, well, I've been thinking about for a long time now, and, and I know that it's something that many of our fellow saloners have been talking about as well, and, well, Eric just really put it really well. So, now that you have your assignment, please join Eric and me, along with a few dozen of our fellow saloners who are also my Patreon supporters, and uh, find out what's been going on lately in the life of one of our younger elders. There we go. Well, we can see you, Eric. Yeah, long- yeah. Hello. Hey, long time no see, Eric. How yeah, are you? <laughs> Pretty good, man. It's, it's true. It's been a while. I know. You've been traveling the world, got a PhD, and uh, uh, tonight I, I'm really excited about talking about your new book because it's the subject matter, of course, that interests all of us a whole lot. Uh, you you are, are just uh, right now on a book tour. Is that right? Well, I'm, I'm home now, but I've been I've been doing the book, uh, uh, you know, off and on all summer, and it's going to continue. I didn't, I you know, smart smart guys bank it all in like three weeks, but I just kind of spread it out over the whole summer. But it's more fun that way. There's more space. Doing a lot of podcasts, doing some in person stuff, doing an event tomorrow. I'm really excited tomorrow night. I'm doing a, a reading at Moe's Books, which is on Telegraph Avenue. The, Fable Telegraph Avenue in uh, Berkeley. Right, California. very, very famous uh, place to do a reading. And I'm doing it on July 23rd, which was a very important date for Robert Anton Wilson, one of the guys I talk about in my book. And he was in Berkeley when, on July 23rd, he got his first serious transmission, you know, his ah. uh, sense that there was something important about the, the star system serious, and this became part of his whole kind of uh, rabbit hole experience uh, that he later called Chapel Perilous. Uh, and and that, that actually took place in Berkeley? Yeah, he was in Berkeley when he was doing that stuff. Oh, so right. it, so tonight, I think, I think tomorrow there'll be some interesting folks coming out of the woodwork. And, and in addition, I was in Berkeley when I first read Illuminatus, Robert Anton Wilson's book with Robert Shea, when I first read uh, Alistair Crowley, and when I first heard about Philip K. Dick, somebody in Berkeley told me, oh, dude, you'd really like Philip K. Dick. So I blame Berkeley. <laughs> well, let, let, me, uh, let me circle around to, to everything that's going on with the Psychedelic Salon. We're in our 15th year, and I'm going to blame you because <laughs> I was, uh, it was at, at that uh, conference that Terrence McKenna did in Hawaii, uh, his last one, uh, few months before he died and it was the the last chance I had to go, have an interesting talk with him and I was in the middle of writing Spirit of the Internet and he says you got to stop what you're doing right now and read Technosis by Eric Davis he says then you can go ahead and write your book so I first heard about <laughs> you which has led to many other people uh, through Terrence McKenna and also uh, I've, I've said this in the salon but I never had a chance to tell you personally that uh, back in 2003, when I decided to, to launch those Planky Norte lectures at Burning Man, you were the first person I called, and, and uh, you weren't really sure it was the best idea, but you wanted to give it a shot, and uh, you got Daniel Pinchbeck on, and, and uh, Alex and Allison Gray, and, and that really you know has launched it. It's still going on today. I, I haven't been there since 2007, but the uh, recordings of those first ones <clears throat> is what I used to do the first podcast, because... 
I never intended to podcast. I was just geeking out. You know, I wanted to see how it worked. I had all these recordings. And uh, one thing led to another, and here we are. So it all came uh, about when Terrence McKenna said, you've got to read Technosis by Eric Davis. So. That's so funny, all those links. You know, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. You know, you, it's funny how lives are, our lives are all interwoven. You know, part of the reason Terrence is in my book is, is because I was friends with him. And, uh, you know, not super close, but we were, we were colleagues mostly. And then towards the end of, end of his life, we were friends. He, uh, in addition to... Uh, doing one of the last interviews with him in Hawaii in the, you know, the few months before he died, half a year before he died, he stayed at our apartment because our apartment is right near UCSF where he was getting treatments. So, you know, we were traveling, so he would come and stay here when we were gone and Kate, you know, we'd overlap and hang out. So I was, you know, I'd spend time with him hanging out when he was in this, you know, the last stage of his, of his life, which was, which was very interesting. I mean, one thing I'm, you know, I, I, I have, especially these days, a lot of uh, complicated feelings about psychedelic culture and the psychedelic scene. Uh, but one thing I, I really believe is that I, I think that, that uh, psychedelic people who have been paying attention, one sign of that, uh, their experience is that they uh, tend to die well. And uh, in Terrence's case, uh, it was pretty clear. You know, I mean, he, you know, whatever, he was, you know, freaked out and sad and, you know, whatever, all the things you, one would be, one will be, we will be probably unless we were, you know, snuffed out like that. Uh, but at the same time, there's a kind of uh, psychedelic wisdom that kicks in or that can kick in uh, that I really believe in. And, and certainly I think was demonstrated, at least in the way that he presented himself, you know, because here he is a public figure, then he gets a you know, basically a death sentence and he's a public figure in the scene. And how, how do you represent that? How do you, how do you model your experience? And, and this was something I could also see on an intimate level. So, you know, Terrence is something that draws us together, but that, that year in Palenque Norte was very significant for me as well. And, you know, I, it, you, you're, you're correct. I was reticent about it and here's why. So I went to Burning Man the first time in 1994. I didn't know anything about it. I, I was on a listserv, fringeware review listserv. Back in the days of listserv, probably your younger listeners won't even know what I'm talking about. I, basically, we, we've got enough people here that, that, have, that are fully aware of it, I'm pretty yeah. sure. So, you know, basically an email list, and it just said, you know, like, art festival, Nevada, in the, somewhere. And I was like, and I was just happened to be in that area with my, with my girlfriend at the time, now my wife traveling around and we said, okay, great. So I had this sublime in retrospect, sublime experience of going to Burning Man with having absolutely no idea. So and that, that was in, in the really wild and woolly days. Too. Yeah. Yeah. There was about 2000 people. So he, you know, my, my experience of entering the festival is worth relating. So, you know, it's basically like there's a map point, you know, go to Gerlach, drive nine miles, get off the road. So you go <laughs> nine miles, you get off the road. There's like one shack, and one like dusty Mad Max dude, you know, all covered up. You can't even really see him. He takes like 40 bucks or something. And then he says, he says, he points out, he goes, you see that mountain? You know, it's like this mountain, like, you know, 50 miles away or something. Drive 12 miles towards that mountain and then make a right. <laughs> <laughs> so you go out there, you like have no idea. It's totally disorienting. You know, there's no, you know, because now... People don't realize it, but the festival is, is tucked in very comfortably at the point of these two ridges, very near Gerlach. But it was way out before, so it was extremely disorienting. You really didn't know where you were. And, you know, it was a wonderful time. Da, da, da. The next year, I said, this is great shit. I'm going to write about it. So I wrote one of the first national articles about Burning Man in 1995. It came out in the Village Voice with a great name, Terminal Beach Party. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because it was a more apocalyptic event back then. It was it was more punk rock, less hippie. Although there were witches there, you know, it was always a little bit of hippie. And, and, and didn't they have a drive-by shooting range at that they time? They did. They did. That was the last year of the drive-by shooting range. Die, Barney! Die! <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was crazy. So anyway, I wrote about it, and then I was like, that's it. I don't want to write about it anymore. Like, I want to go to Burning Man and just 
do it. Just be there. Just do whatever I'm doing. I don't want to take notes. I don't want to interview people. I don't want to write about it later. I don't want to pretend like I know what it's about. I just want to leave it alone and just enjoy, just have that experience. And so that was how I went through, I skipped a couple of years, but how I went through the late 90s and the early 2000s. So when you asked me, I was like, I don't want to give talks here. I've been giving talks for a decade at that point, but like, screw that. And then I was like, well, you know, eh, maybe it's time. And it was really amazing experience. I mean, really, it was one of the best pieces I've ever written. I, I love that piece I wrote about Burning Man back in the day. It was one of the best, very, very memorable talk. You know, the windstorm came up and I'm talking and it's like dusty. And then later on, I had someone who said, you know, that was my first year at Burning Man. And I came to hear your talk. And it totally like <laughs> shaped my whole experience. And I'm like, ah, you know. But anyway, it was a wonderful thing. And I'm, I was very, I'm very happy to help initiate this whole marvelous project that you've been running for so long. It's really, I'm really happy. Hey, by the way, are you still in Del Mar? No, no. Uh, we've, we've moved uh, from there to Carlsbad. No, it's still North County, you know. Sounds great to me, man, as long as you have access to those books. Well, I, I've got over, <laughs> over 700 on my Kindle right now, too. So <laughs> Way to go. Way to and, go. And the one I'm working on, is that, uh, working through, is one that you're going to be involved in, too, the Rosa Paracelsus. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I'm going to help participate and read a chapter that I haven't heard from it recently, but I haven't picked out my chapter. I have to admit I have not read the tome. It's a long book. Uh, there's a lot of long books out there. So, uh, but I, I really look forward to uh, finding a juicy bit and supporting. Yeah, right, right now, Kat Lakey is the primary uh, producer of it and she's in the Amazon right now. She's been on a work study program there for several years. And so when she gets back, we're going to pick it up again. We put that, right. that uh, preliminary one out, that three and a half hour one has had a lot of play and, and a lot of good comments. And, and, you know, it's encouraging to Leonard to be able to know that his story is getting out, you know. So uh, appreciate you uh, stepping up to read him. And uh, so, well, let's talk about, about your book here. Uh, the, the, the title, go ahead and give us the title and, and tell us these three characters. Uh, and by the way, uh, you're, you're sort of a character yourself now. You know, you're, I'm older than you, but you're actually uh, more of an elder than I am. <laughs> and, a, I think I am. I, me I remember distinctly the first time that uh, so someone called me an elder. And at that point, I was I was in my 30s. But it was I was like, ah, it was terrifying. But I could see my fate, you know. <laughs> well, your, your first Palenque Norte talk is one of the first 10 podcasts on the salon, too. So <laughs> yes, you, you, you definitely qualify. But, but uh, uh, the, the rather than have me kind of mess it up because there's a lot of things I'd like to uh, hear about. Why don't you kind of give us a title? Tell us, uh, I know it came about through your thesis work and uh, sure. uh, some of the surprises that came about. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say, but I'll, I'll just give a brief one. Then we can just talk from there. Uh, it, it, the, the book is called high weirdness, drugs, esoterica, and visionary experience in the 70s, 1970s. And it's based on my dissertation, which I, I got my PhD, uh, uh, I earned it like, I guess, four years ago I got it um, from Rice University and uh, in the, from a department of religion. But they let me study this weird shit. Like most departments of religion don't let you study psychedelics in the 70s and write a dissertation on it. But I was lucky. I had a great advisor, Jeff Kripal, who, who writes wonderful books. If you like this kind of stuff, you should check out particularly his book on uh, comic books and uh, mysticism called Mutants and Mystics, an awesome book. And anyway, so he's a cool guy, supported me. And what the book is, there's sort of three levels of it. On one level, it's a kind of in-depth story of the extraordinary experiences in the 1970s of three or four guys. The first uh, group is uh, Terrence McKenna and his brother, Dennis, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Goes down to La Chirera, 1971, has this extraordinary experiences, changes their lives, you know, eventually leads to, you know, a handbook about mushrooms and all of Terrence's later ideas inspires Dennis to go on and do all sorts of psychedelic science. The second person is Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, he wrote a famous 
very influential underground head classic called Illuminatus in 1975. He also had an extraordinary experience a couple of years later in Berkeley. There's a lot of Berkeley, a lot of California in my story. Uh, and in Berkeley, he, um, he had written all these crazy books about uh, conspiracy theories and esotericism and, but funny and satirical. Like he wasn't, he wasn't believing any, but it was all kind of jive. It was all kind of a countercultural joke, you know, real good humored, sort of mischievous guy, a little bit of a, it was was really fun to read too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, super fun. But then what happens is he goes to moves to Berkeley, doesn't have a real job anymore. He's taking a lot of acid. He's doing a lot of um, ritual magic, reading a lot of Aleister Crowley, Things get weirder and weirder. He starts noticing that he can kind of program his experiences in advance. And then he wakes up on this July 23rd. Tomorrow is the day I'm doing the reading. On July 23rd, and he goes, Sirius is important. And he, then he kind of enters what he later called a chapel perilous, where he really believed wholeheartedly that he was receiving extraterrestrial transmissions from some alien intelligence associated with the star system Sirius. And so he entered a kind of paranoid reality tunnel, all these synchronicities, blah, blah, blah. People who have done high-dose psychedelics can appreciate some of the characteristics of what he was talking about, but he kind of lived it for like a year. And he came out the other side and he he returned to a kind of skepticism, a kind of open-ended, playful skepticism as opposed to a hard-edged, negative, you know, rationalist kind of skepticism. And uh, he wrote a great book about it called Cosmic Trigger, highly, highly recommended for people who are interested in psychedelics and all this weird stuff. And so I write about that and his experiences there in the 1970s. And then the third character I write about, another, uh, the the only native Californian, but another uh, one-time Berkeley resident, the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, uh, who in addition to writing a lot of science fiction, had this extraordinary experience happen to him in 1974. And Dick's a little different than the other guys because he didn't take psychedelics that, that often, like hardly at all, actually, in the, and mostly in the 1960s. His, his trips were very influential for him. Some of them were bad. Some of them were good. Uh, but he wasn't like a psychedelic user. He wasn't using psychedelics to break through. He wasn't Promethean the way uh, McKenna and, and Wilson both were. Uh, it kind of happened to him more sort of naturally. He was non-neurotypical. He had mental health problems. He was, you know, a challenged guy. He was a hurt puppy in some ways, but also uh, uh, an extraordinarily creative guy and a visionary of sorts. So in 1974, he has a series of extraordinary experiences, you know, synchronicities, uh, voices in his head. He feels there's another being inhabiting him. He gets, uh, p- you know, beams of light. Uh, flash to him he gets information um you know it's, it's a it's a very rich stew uh and he spent the rest of his life is the, the next eight years of his life kind of working out the implications of these experiences he wrote a, a a number of novels sort of based on his experiences or inspired by them the most famous of which and the most valuable uh you know highly recommended if a, it's a it's not the easiest read it's a little it's heavy but life is heavy sometimes, and it's called Vallis. Uh, and uh, he also wrote this enormous private philosophical diary called The Exegesis. Huge. It's like a million words long, and I worked on an edited version of it that was like a tenth of it. It's still this massive book that's only a tenth of the whole thing. Anyway, he, he tried to work out what his experiences meant, and he never came to a conclusion. So it's like he got the revelation but he didn't get the message, which is a very funny paradox and also, you know, a difficult one. And Pretty so frustrating too. I guess that probably spurred a lot of his work. Exactly. He was frustrated and inspired at this in kind of a mutual balance. So I, I talk about him as well. So on one level, my book is about these three stories. On another level, my book, you know, like a lot of people who write history, you're like, you got to put it in context. When is it happening? Why, where is it happening? What's the historical context? It's always the first question to ask. Anytime you read anything that blows your mind, as soon as you can step away, take one step back and go, okay, who was this person? Where did they live? How did they live? What time was it? What was going on around them? It's always a great way to kind of get a sense of where things are coming from. And it helps you, you know, get some ballast, 
some sense about how things are working rather than just listening to the voice itself. It's not a perfect method, but it really helps. So in this case, I'm interested in the 1970s. I think the 1970s are an extremely important era. I think that for me personally, they're much more interesting than the 60s. The 60s is awesome, great. Well, we, we kind of all know the story. But the 70s is a much murkier, weirder, darker, but in some ways even more creative story. Uh, and so I'm, I was really interested in why did all these things happen to these guys in a sort of a similar way. A lot of their experiences were very similar. There were themes of science fiction, of future technology, of uh, esoterica, mystical experience. There was a kind of humor to them. There was a kind of uh, reflexivity. They were kind of aware of the way that it wasn't quite what it seemed. And there was a kind of paradoxical, mischievous quality. It was very, there's a lot of resonances between their experiences, but that, to me, has, says something about the 70s. So I'm also talking about the 1970s. And finally, the most sort of scholarly layer, the difficult, more difficult layer, is just like, how do we think about this stuff? How do you think about these extraordinary experiences? And in this case, all three of these guys wrote very extraordinary books about their experiences. So it's not like we just have someone's story. We have a book or a set of books that help us kind of put together what happened to them or at least the way they experienced what happened to them. So how do we think about it? Is it true? Are they crazy? Are they mystics? Is it a fiction? Is it a part of all of those? Which is, of course, what I think. Uh, and really, let's try to think about how to think about these kinds of experiences. And so to do that, and then I'll, I'll end this, this kind of introduction of the book, to do that, I had to come up with some kind of idea. Because even though these kinds of experiences and psychedelic experiences in general resemble religious experiences or mystical experiences, which are established idea in the history of religions. Oh, we religious experiences, people have these things. And you go, yeah, it's kind of like religious experiences, but they're also kind of not like religious experiences. There's something else going on. Sometimes, they, especially at these high-dose ones or with something, someone like Philip K. Dick, who was really a little, you know, nutty, they resemble psychotic experiences. They're a little crazy, like, Kind of really crazy, actually. I mean, with Terrence, Dennis basically lost it for two weeks. He wasn't there. He was babbling. He couldn't respond to social cues. Half the people that were hanging out with him thought he was crazy and they needed to airlift him to a hospital. I mean, it was serious stuff. I mean, if your friend acted like that, you'd go, my friend is crazy now. We have to deal with this. This is not just fun and games anymore. So there's an element of psychosis in the story, but... Like religious experience, doesn't quite work. It's not just psychotic. There's something else. It's it's too coherent. It's too much like a story. It's it's too rich and it means too much to them. It's not just like a break or uh, you know running against the wall or, or or unraveling. There's something else going on here. So I had to. What is this? What's a way to think about it? And the the, the what, what I decided or what I fell on, what kind of came to me as a way of thinking about it was this idea of the weird, the weird. Now, weirdness is a really interesting idea. We use the term all the time. After I've said this, just take the next week and just kind of keep your ears open for how often people go, yeah, it was weird. Yeah, this weird thing happened to me. Yeah, this really weird guy. Oh, it was a weird movie, whatever. It's a, it's a common f- term we use, but we don't really think about. We just kind of put stuff there that sort of, uncomfortable, strange, kind of enchanted, sometimes paranormal. You know, if we have like a paranormal experience, we start seeing, you know, the number 23 all day long. You're like, you know, and you're telling someone like, oh my God, I was seeing like the number 23 all day long. I opened the book, it was 23. The guy came to the thing, had a 23 in a shirt. You know, I got the 23rd, you know, ticket for the lotto. You know, it's really weird. Like, it's weird. (laughs) You know, because you don't, you don't want to say, oh, it means like the hand of God is writing my fate. That, what? I don't know what that means. It's supernatural. Maybe. I don't know if it's supernatural, but it's weird. <laughs> we can all agree, all of us, sometimes reality, or at least our experience of reality, is very 
very weird. And you know, so I've never thought about that, Eric. That is that's such an obvious thing now that you point it out, because I use that all the time myself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. Be, I think it's the place where we go to say reality is not what it, it seems from the normal point of view, but I don't know what it is. And I'm not going to make any extra claims like reality is supernatural, reality is mystical, reality is religious, actually, reality is part of a larger field. Those things might be true, but I don't know about that. But I, I definitely, totally to my bones know that reality can be very weird. Dreams can be weird. Encounters can be weird. Experience can be weird. Drugs can be weird. So I use this idea of weirdness as a way to talk about these experiences, I hope, in kind of a fresh way, not just sort of talking about them in terms of religion or psychosis or projection or even psychedelics. You know, Philip K. Dick's experiences weren't psychedelic, but they were very similar to these other experiences. So it's, it's not just about drugs and drug experience. It's something else about our minds, about the world about the nature of reality that I'm trying to point to. So it's a, it's a big book, you know, it's like a big, it's a tome. I, I like to think of it as a, it's like a chocolate cake. It's got many layers, it's dense, it's rich, and it's got a tasty pop frosting that's slightly psychoactive itself. <laughs> do, do the publishers at MIT Press know you call it with a frosting? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, actually, they've been enjoying it. They've been actually really fun, really, really fun to work with. Um, you know, I was really happy to get it on a good academic press, but it's co-published. So MIT Press is one of the publishers, you know, a solid academic uh, publisher. But the other publisher is Strange Attractor, which is a wonderful independent publisher uh, out of London uh, in, in the United Kingdom. And they've been, they publish all sorts of strange books about, you know, witchcraft museums and underground music and animals music and, uh, uh, you know, a weird fiction. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful zombie movies, uh, horror films, all sorts of stuff like that. So it's a, a wonderful mix of the kind of weird esoteric and the kind of official academic. And that's, that's very much what the book is, is kind of like a weird scholarly book. The, uh, uh, I've, I've got a, a qu question for you, but I've got a quick comment, too, to sort of uh, back up what you're saying, how uh, psychedelic people uh, uh, are interested in, in dying properly, because the uh, most recent talk I gave last March at a conference was about the psychedelic hospice movement and, and ways that psychedelic people can uh, learn to die properly. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm about to turn 77 in a few weeks, and uh uh, so I got to think about these things, and and uh, quite frankly, it's uh, psychedelics are what really makes uh, the whole thought process about dying uh, real comfortable and easy to do. Well, but I have a, I have a question for you, rather than get back into the dying thing. Is uh, we have a, a lot of of young listeners that are uh, high school and college age students, and uh, I've got a lot of I also get questions about uh, how can I get into psychedelic work of some kind, whether it's research, medical, literature, whatever, the arts. And uh, I'm just curious about how did you approach the religious department at Rice University to accept a, a thesis based on, on what you just described? Well, it, I was, I was, it was easy for me. I was lucky because of my advisor, this guy, Jeff Kripal. And Jeff Kripal is an unusual figure in religious studies. He's very well respected by some. I mean, some people disagree with him uh, quite a bit, but he still has a lot of power, if you will, in the, uh, in the field. And he's always been interested in the kind of extreme events. And while in some ways he's kind of a, a normie, uh, you know, a straight guy, Midwesterner, former Catholic, you know, good student, you know, father, husband, dude, uh, he also had his own mystical experience when he was in India studying, doing, writing his first book, uh, which was about the Indian 19th century Indian saint Ramakrishna. So he's writing about Ramakrishna, studying about Ramakrishna, and he had basically an experience of the goddess Kali. And his whole body was inflamed. I mean, he had a classic, very bodily, very energetic 
mystical experience that was like full on, you know, A plus mystical experience on the Natch, no drugs, no expectations, no religious practice, just one night the lights went on. And so that made him a very interesting kind of scholar. He became very, he is very interested in the paranormal, in the mystical, in what drives mystical scholars, you know, people like me who have experiences, but then also want to think about their experiences and the, the loop between books and experience, which is very important. It's a very important part of my, my writing. And I think is a very important part of psychedelics. A lot of being a psychedelic person is reading about psychedelics is knowing about other stories, other people, other times, other places, and these things kind of mixed together. So in any case, he invited me to get a PhD. He was like, come on down to Rice and get a PhD and we'll let you write about whatever you want to write about. So it was kind of a no-brainer for me once I was in that position because there's still very – just it's changing now within the humanities and the social sciences. There's a lot more openness to psychedelics, and that's just going to keep on changing as psychedelics – the, the renaissance. I've noticed the same thing. You know, it's probably a part, partially a generational shift because uh, so many of the baby boomers are moving out and the younger generations coming into positions like that. <laughs> when you were talking about the number 23 popping up and synchronicities, I couldn't help but to remember that you were born in Del Mar and I was living in Del Mar when we first met. Uh, you got your PhD from Rice in Houston. I got my PhD from the University of Houston. Uh-huh. <laughs> or my doctorate, and uh, my college roommate was the uh, first PhD in space science from Rice University in 65 or 7. <laughs> so our, our, we, we have a number 23 between us somewhere. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That's, that's what I mean when you start looking at – that's part of that weirdness. You know, the thing about the w- weirdness is one of the reasons I like it is that on the one hand, it gestures towards the enchanted, to the – the beyond, the outside, the things that don't fit in our reality. But there's another aspect of the weird that is partly what makes things weird that's actually very ordinary. It's very banal. It's right in front of us. Just basic stuff. Just the way things feel. Like, wait, I, I thought my glass was over here, but now it's over here. Oh, well, I, I guess I didn't remember it well. But if you really pay attention, actually, ordinary life is pretty weird, including your own experience. Like, oh, I went here, and then this happened, and I met this guy. But if you start going into all those connections, you're going to find all sorts of really interesting resonances. And there's a kind of poetry of our, of our ordinary experiences in a way that, that I think of is, is, is well described by the, by the weird. Yeah, you know, I, I've always thought of coincidences as clues. And if, if you stop getting coincidences, you're on the wrong track because you're not getting any clues anymore. And uh, synchronicity is sort of a clue on steroids, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, but here's the interesting thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like if you, you know, if you haven't had one for a while, for a while, you have a couple of synchronicities and it's like, all right, I'm on the right path. Like just this last weekend, I had some 23s. Now 23 is a number that's in the Robert Anton Wilson book, Illuminatus. And he first heard about it from William Burroughs, you know, the, the famous beat writer who said, yeah, there's something about 20. There's something about 23. That's not a very good Burroughs. But anyway, um, there's something about 23. Are you, are you coming on, Larry, with the 23 comment? <laughs> well, what I was going to say is because I, you know, read the Illuminatus trilogy in, in the early 70s. And, and I'm in the comic book business, you know. And so I know for a fact that, you know, media is filled with 23s because people know that and they're trying to, you know, they want to actually freak you out and communicate with you. And so to me, 23 has lost some of its power when you see, you know, they're in a hotel room and it's the door is 23 because that is, um, that's a choice that somebody made. But, um, but the word weird, I mean, first of all, I'm late here because I just got back from Comic-Con. And so, uh, but so, so you, you just came from weird. <laughs> the word that is most identified with my work for the over the last 30 years is weird. It's like that yeah, is. Yeah, I don't know if you know Eric. Uh, he's hilarious, the creator of Bean World. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so, but, you know, it, it's like, I don't know how to describe this book, but it's really, really weird. I was once told by a, a high up librarian in Indianapolis that my book was the weirdest book in her entire library. 
You know, it's just, it's a funny word. And I'm not even really sure what it means. Yeah. That, I mean, that, 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 was, that was one of my, the points I was making is that we don't really know what it means. And so one of the things I was like, where does it come from? So I just did an etymology. I traced where do we start using it? How does it evolve? How does it become associated with a certain kind of, of uh, creative art? Like when do we say, oh, that's a weird story? That's weird fiction. And then I trace it through comic books. And, you know, in the, in the 50s, there's tons of these EC comics that are like weird science, weird this, weird that. I mean, yeah, there's like weird, dozens weird. of them. Weird was banned from the covers. It was one of the banned books. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Once, once they put the regulation on that, was like that indicated something that was sort of, you know, nasty, <laughs> something, something under, you know, like right, it like it, it undermined. There's, there's definitely a sort of undermining quality to it. Uh, but, but so you can really, tr- I mean, that's you know, I'm sort of a historian, uh, not exclusively, but I love tracing where things come from. You know, where does the, the phrase weird tale come from? What did Lovecraft think about the weird when he did? And he has wonderful definition. They were in weird tales. Yeah. Lovecraft and Howard. Yeah. And, and Clark Ashton Smith are uh, California's own. So I am going to ask a question that's going to kind of divert a little bit. But um, the reason why I became part of this group was a lecture I think that you gave at um, it's on it's on Lorenzo's podcast and that you gave at Burning Man. And it had to do with, because a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, who's not here between me and Lorenzo, um, knew that I would be really interested in this, but, you know, I wasn't paying attention. But you said something about, you know, that the original elements were earth, water, fire, and air, and they have been kind of surpassed by electricity. Mm. And I, I'm still not over that one. That, <laughs> that is, that is mind blowing. So. Yeah. Well, that, 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 that's, that's a good riff. That's it brings me back, you know, uh, even back when the, you know, when they have the five, you know, the, the, the one thing to say about the, uh, the pentagram, the five points is to say that there are the four classic elements, earth, air, fire, water. And then the fifth one is the quintessence, the fifth, essence when they first started to explore electricity in the 17th little bit 18th definitely early 19th century one of the interesting things when they first started to muss around with electricity lightning rods batteries etc is that nobody had any idea what it was they knew it, it went zap they, they knew there was something happening, but there was no theory of it. Like now, if you go like a, you know, if you go a- ask a physicist, what's electricity? Oh, well, it's a flow of ions between blah, 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 blah. And they'll hand you the textbook and, you know, you read it. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. You're like, what? Are you guys sure you know what you're talking about? Like, oh, yeah, we understand it. They don't really because it's pretty weird. Like electricity is weird. And that's one of my points about weird is that there's parts of reality, like quantum physics and electricity, that are pretty weird. But in any case, so when they first started building things out of electricity, even even the telegraph in the you know, 1840s, it was this very mysterious stuff. And people would even call it the quintessence. And, you know, people don't really take electricity that seriously. They think it's like, well, you know, we just have this stuff. We figured out how to use it. We can generate it with, you know, induction coils and, you know, big deal. We can bring some lights. And I'm like... No, 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 no. It's like the earth is evolving for millions of years and human beings are on it for hundreds of thousands of years doing their evolution. And then at some point, this electrical fluid, which is another way they called it, which is distributed throughout the cosmos, becomes technologized and suddenly begins to move around and shape and now completely fuels our whole civilization. And, but it's an element. It's not human. It's not an idea. It's juice. It's like something that's both a real thing and a symbol, the way earth, air, fire, and water are. And it's what we live and breathe. And there's some really interesting stuff by uh, Rudolf Steiner, you know, this uh, esoteric thinker. He has some great stuff on electricity because he's like, 
mostly he thinks it's a little bit more on the dark side, but not entirely. It's sort of like a troll (laughs) for him. It's like, you know, we could do better, but it's, you know, we got to use it. So, you know, let's do our best with it. But he very much wrapped it into his esoteric, thinking that very much involved these elemental forces in the cosmos or whatever. So I, for me, once I kind of grok that about, I, I've never seen civilization the same because I, I always feel like we're inside of some kind of electrical, spiritual troll <laughs> experiment that we can't stop now. <laughs> but I thanks appreciate for, Thanks for talking about that. Please. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So does, does anybody else have a question? If you'd like, uh, you can uh, hit that participant button. Okay, go ahead, Rich. Uh, uh, Eric, I'm reading your book right now, man, and it's great. Great. Yeah, the inside, the inside jacket is so cool, man. Yeah. I'm loving it. Um, I read Prometheus Rising last year and got stuck in Robert Anton Wilson's uh, reality tunnel and had quite a dissociative experience uh, for a few weeks, and you, you mentioned somewhere else that you wanted to get into Philip K. Dick's uh, head, but not for three years. Did you, when writing this and researching all this, did you, or I'm sure you have in the past, what's your experience been with getting stuck in one of those reality tunnels or just starting to believe in all of this stuff that they've, they've churned out of their head? You know, that's a wonderful question. I mean, I, I've been since talking about this book and bringing it out there, one of the things I've been thinking about more is how to say uh, the ethics of these writers, meaning they put these ideas out there, but there's something infectious about them. There's something a little viral and there's a dark side to that. And there's a disruptive side to it. And they're not always that responsible about that which means that we as readers, especially if we're susceptible to this stuff or if we're uh, at difficult points of our lives or we're really obsessed with it or, uh, you know, whatever, there's, there's different situations where we're more susceptible to things than others. And those things can come in, you know, just the way we talk about memes today, you know, online or ideas that are viral or political positions that are, you know, have a, a certain kind of expand and slide their way through things that there's something about this esoteric weird stuff, especially the three guys that I'm talking about that has that infectious quality, but definitely more, more Wilson uh, and, and, uh, and Dick, I think than, than McKenna. I think McKenna doesn't have quite so uh, dark uh, dimension to what he was talking about. And it's not just dark by any means, but your question about me is what happened to me. You know, that's a really interesting one because I think in some ways putting all the time into writing this, uh, you know, many years of study and reading is both a symptom of the way in which I had the same experience you did and the antidote to it at the same time. It's like in some ways I, I never totally got out. Like I was still, I still have the Philip K. Dick reality might be a construct by some evil demon thing in my head or Robert Anton Wilson, you can't know anything. So you're just let loose and there's no orientation and good luck kid and uh, a kind of paranoid quality or weird dreams or, you know, I've had parts of my life that were, that were challenging that way they never became like a real problem. It never looked to anyone else or even really me like mental illness exactly, but it has, you know, you're going down the park. I mean, one, just as a side note, I I didn't finish what I was saying earlier, how uh, like synchronicities, you get a couple and you're like, Oh, it's kind of cool. Something's happening. I'm on, you know, maybe I'm on the right path or, you know, something's unfolding. Great. But if you get synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity, you're nuts. <laughs> no, I mean, you're crazy. You, uh-oh, here we go. And maybe, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> maybe you can hold it together. 
But if you can't hold it together, they're gonna, you know, everyone around you is gonna, oh, he's not, he's, what he's saying, oh, well, this is the, the telephone's talking to the thing, and the class is just the same as the other person said, or, you know, and then you're, you've lost the plot, as they say in, in the UK. That's a great phrase, losing the plot. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a knife edge. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the idea of uh, the uh, the tightrope walk. That as we go through these strange experiences, reading weird books, kind of bringing it on in a sense, it's like being on a tightrope. You got to keep your balance, and it's you got to keep awake, you know, and and not just get drawn into whatever. Recognize that you're in a difficult situation. You can't just get to solid ground. You're not on solid ground. But there's something about maintaining a balance and a clarity and, and to some degree, uh, a, sense, a common sense that works in an uncommon situation. So my writing of this book, again, is very much both the way that these things still haunt me, that I'm still marked by them in ways that I can't control, and at the same time, that there's, I believe, a kind of way through. And it, there was a way through to a degree for all the people I'm talking about. And that's one of the interesting things about the people, as you'll see when you get to, you know, deeper into the book, which is, you know, it's, a ten, it's not the easiest read, but it's, I, I like to think that it's worth it. Uh, that all three of these guys, McKenna, Wilson, and Dick, they both succeeded. They were good tightrope walkers. And they fell. We all kind of fall. They fell into delusion. They fell into messianic thinking. They fell into inflation, which is the idea that you're a messiah or you know something, per, you know, that's going to help the world drastically, tra you know, transform everything. Uh, and these are familiar motifs, both from psychedelic experience and from psychosis and, you know, from, from life on the fringe. And they, they kind of did both. They sort of show both how to do it and what happens when you don't. And in some sense, if we're drawn to this stuff, we're on that tightrope. Uh, and we can, always, we can always gain our, you know, you always get better. You know, it's like a practice. You can always get better at being a tightrope walker. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, Eric, about the people like, like uh, Terrence McKenna and, and, and Dick and, and Wilson, you know, being out on the fringe, on the edge, and then also being expected to live up to a reputation you didn't totally create yourself. I know that, that work on, on Terrence, and, and I'm sure it did on the others. In fact, just about three weeks ago, I, I podcast uh, another Robert Anton Wilson talk. I've had him here in the salon a few times, and Terrence has had over 270 appearances here. So, Oh, my gosh. We preserved a lot of him, and I, uh, the, the Leary estate gave me all his digital stuff, so I have about 50 of those up there. So, so it is uh, sort of a record of some of the, the thinking from back in those days, too. And, and I think what the comments I get from people uh, after I podcast some of these talks, I've never done one by Dick. It's very difficult to find stuff by him. But uh, the, the comments are generally they say, you know, I don't really buy a lot of what they're saying, but it's really pushed me to think about these things. And I, I think, and I think Terrence really understood that himself. I don't think he really wanted to be a guru of any kind. Of, no, he really you know, did better than most people. So no, he really, he really didn't. Dick was, Dick was uh, never respectable in his lifetime correct he and he died he went on the set of blade runner but he died before his influence hit the media and 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 really so many things that we live with in our world are in his are in his books and you know i don't think he thought of himself as any kind of you know certainly when he was writing his books in the 50s and the 60s once he had you know Valus, you know everything after that uh it, it kind of became very different, but just the idea, because one of my favorite things about his books was there's this, you know, this guy gets in a car, he wants to go to California, and his car tells him, nah, I can't make it to California, I don't have enough oil, and he says, well, we're going anyway, and the car says, I'll sue you, and it's just, we're, yeah, no, no, there's a lot of things like that, you know, or this little, there's little kind of in, insect robots that are you know, uh, tracking your credit and hassling you if you don't have, you know, credit or the guy who's got to 
you know, feed it, feed money to his his household devices to get out of his his get little out of the door. Get, get the door open, <laughs> and and you know it, it's funny, be, funny, funny because in when you read the novels outside the context of our contemporary moment, these things don't seem like these aren't. This isn't science fiction. That's like predicting the actual technological future. It's not hard science fiction. It's absurdism. It's Kafka. It's it's Dada. It's wacky. And yet, he got closer to the texture of our contemporary existence probably than anyone. It, it, the way that it feels, this sort of vague dis-unease, a little paranoid, not really sure what all these objects are doing, kind of confused. It's sort of enchanted, but not in a particularly fun way. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's really kind of striking. There's a very much of a sense of, of, uh, of we're very aware of, of money, of, of capitalism and how capitalism distorts reality. I mean, that's a major theme throughout his, uh, throughout his fiction. So yeah, he's a, he's a grim prophet in a really, really interesting way. May I chime in with something? Sure. Go ahead. <clears throat> Amazing. I just, I just wanted to, I'm pretty new to the live salons, but I've listened, I've been following Lorenzo like that from episode one. Um, I just, just because there's been a little bit of chat going on on the side, I just wanted to put my hand up. Uh, it makes me feel nervous to say it because I'm aware that there's all sorts of labels that come with it. I have dedicated my life to seeking out people that have regular out of body, mystical, lucid dream, precognition, telepathy, you name it, experiences on the natch. So I came very, very late to psychedelics because all of this was going on in my life anyway. But I also have an incredibly good bullshit detector. I'm not just in for, you know, the game of it. I've never made a living out of it. It's not something that I'm into. I'm genuinely interested because I was born into a white Western culture that didn't have any words for any of this. And I do feel like Kenya was saying in the chat, in another culture, it's a very ordinary thing to have these mystical experiences, etc. What I wanted to say was that this is very timely, this book and this work, because when I did come to psychedelics, I came to see how comparable the psychedelic experience was with other sorts of experiences and found some overlap and some divergence. Um, but it's a very, I think it's a really critical time for us to be aware that we can activate a lot of this stuff through sound frequency, through meditation, through just lucid dreaming is one of the most easy things you can practice. So these things will happen to me spontaneously. And because I was brought up in a house that was very much against it, it made me protect these capacities and go looking for other people. So I just, gen I just gently wanted to say, there are so many people living sane, sober, you know, they may um, use medicines, they may not, but they're out in the world. I've, I've spent my entire life seeking them out to find them. And they're not just hear anecdotes, but actually have mutually activated experiences on the natch with people. And in Australia, it's a very common thing. You sit with a clever man, there doesn't need to be anything in the mix. You sit with a clever man, there's some ditch, and they'll hold their hands out and you'll see the entire ancestral line of, of you know, flashing before your eyes in their palms. And it's, it's not trickery, it's just a, a tapped in this. So but I just want to... Let me, let me uh, interrupt you a second here, because while we have Eric here, you brought up something interesting that Eric referred to in the very beginning, uh, mm -hmm. just uh, sidewise kind of. Eric, you said something like you had some issues with the uh, psychedelic experience, uh, the way it's presented by some members of the community, if I understood you right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's actually a lot, there's a lot of issues. I mean, I've been around the scene for a while, but I, I mean, just to, in, in order to focus on, on what Un said, I, I, you know, I think one of it is that we, we tend to kind of overly fetishize psychedelics as psychedelics. And now they're groovy and it's like, oh, their medicines are going to save all this and that and it's still this obsession with the material. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book the way I did is I, I put these three figures together is two of them are profoundly psychedelic. They would not have had their experiences unless they were taking high doses of, in Terrence's case, mushrooms with a you know, little bit of other stuff added on there. And in uh, Wilson's case, LSD. Uh, but Dick, Again, though he had used drugs a lot in the 60s, by the time he had his really breakthrough experience, he wasn't really using drugs at all. And while he had an unusual mind and, uh, you know, was, was having, he had a lot of difficult mental experiences as well, uh, he was also having things on the natch. 
And indeed, a lot of the really important stuff around these experiences in 1974 and the few years afterwards had to do with dreams, with encountering things in dreams, and with actually him learning to sort of surf his dreams, to listen to his dreams, not so much lucid dreaming, but more exploring hypnagogia, that period of time between uh, waking and sleeping. As you go to sleep, you kind of things start to get weird, and you can kind of like begin to surf that space. My, my wife, Jennifer Dumpert, just wrote a book about this actually called Liminal Dreaming. And lucid dreaming is, uh, you know, not doesn't come to everyone. It's, it takes a lot of practice to learn how to do it. And some people work really, really hard and don't get that much results. But liminal dreaming is actually much easier in a lot of ways. All you're really doing is learning to stay awake as you go to sleep and to pay attention as you enter into the dream realm. And things become extremely bizarre, very wonderful, very mercurial, very interesting. And Dick learned to kind of stay awake there, and he would get messages from this realm, and then he would write them down, and then those messages would help him understand all these other experiences he was happening. So he's very much an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about, and it's that there's a lot of stuff that happens to people on the Natch. Now, some of these people... They don't have any choice in the matter, like Dick. It just happens. They're just going to get it. And sometimes they get too much, and sometimes they get a little crazy, and sometimes they get really crazy. And it's a continuum. In other cultures, as you point out, there are different ways of organizing it. Now, people can still go crazy in any culture, any indigenous culture. You can still have someone who just loses the plot. But overwhelmingly, there's far more ways that the culture has to kind of hold, contain, shape, and allow these otherworldly experiences. And so, you know, and, and, and of course they happen in the West too. So I think, I think it is extremely important to acknowledge not only that these other things happen and that they're related, but not the same thing as psychedelics, but that people who are interested in psychedelics, who see it sounds cool, sounds interesting. You're probably better off trying to see these up, some of these other techniques, see if they work for you. You know, at least initially, because if you end up deciding to use psychedelics, you'll, you'll probably have a more grounded sense of it as a practice. The, one of the criticisms I have about drugs is that it's very easy, especially in our, you know, particularly in our culture, in fact, you know, in our culture, to just, it's just another thing. It's like, you know, buying a toy. It's like going to the movies. It's like getting a hamburger. You like get a thing, you buy it. You take it, it does something for you. You have an experience, like going to the movie or going to a theme park. You have an experience. And that kind of consumerist attitude is so embodied in taking a drug and not doing anything that we forget that psychedelics, properly taken, I believe, are a practice. They're not just a thing or an experience. It's a practice. It's something you got to bring yourself to, and you do it intelligently over time with work, the same way you learned how to lucid dream with a practice. Some people it comes naturally, but most of us have to learn. It's just like meditation. You know, I've been meditating for 30 years. It's pretty trippy out there. Let me tell you, it's pretty fun. I mean, sometimes it's a drag, but like, it's, it's like not normal out there in meditation land, but it's taken me years and years of practice to do that. I don't even recommend it. It's a lot of work. But the point being that all this whole realm is way better when you think of it as a practice. And one of the reasons that indigenous cultures are able to contain these otherworldly experiences is not just because they, they're more mythological or they're, they're, they don't have this idea of psychosis and they're not pathologizing and they're not stuck in rationality. You know, it's probably part of it. But I think more to the point is that they have all of these practices that people are able to engage in that enable them to integrate, play with, shape, reflect, express, creatively respond to these impulses that come from outside the norm. So I, I really encourage anybody who's doing this kind of stuff seriously is to have a practice. Think about psychedelics as a practice, you know, where you bring yourself, you have intention, you have a ritual, you have a way of integrating, you know, some sense that you're, you're learning how to navigate when you go back there, you like, you learn more, you read about other people's techniques, 
not their experiences. I don't think the experiences in a lot of ways are that important, actually. There's too much of an emphasis on experiences. Uh, this happened, I saw this, I had this vision. Great, whatever. It's much more about who you are as you learn to exist in between this realm and that realm and in this other realm. And how do you show up there? How do you behave? How do you bring yourself to these experiences, especially to the difficult parts of them? But in addition to treating psychedelics as a practice, have another practice. Meditate. Do Aikido. Do Judo. Do yoga. Like have a regular practice where you just have the idea of practice in your life where you, you, you put yourself in there, you got to devote some time, you got to sacrifice a little, you do it over and over and over, and you begin to change. And the way you begin to change in response to a practice, to a spiritual practice, but also a physical practice, martial arts, mixed wrestling, you know, wrestling, you know, martial, anything physical that you bring yourself to with your whole body and being, that's totally going to help all of your explorations. And, and I, I don't think there's enough emphasis on that for sure. But Eric, that was so beautifully said, even though I have more questions, I think we should end on that because that was just just wonderful what you said. And I'm in total agreement with all of it. And I think most of the people that listen to these podcasts do too. We've talked about this before. And uh, the the point of having a practice is crucial. Uh, and, and you stated it just perfectly. I hope that uh, maybe you can come back sometime here before too much longer and uh, we can talk some more. Oh, yeah, this is fun. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. We haven't. And, and let me ask, is your wife's book published yet? Yeah, it just came out. It's called Liminal Dreaming. And it's a, it's a really cool book because the thing about hypnagogy is, is we don't really think about it. Like it's not a term people think about. They don't really notice it. A lot of people don't even notice it. And once you tell them, yeah, you know that part where you're between sleeping and waking, and they're, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, I know that. Well, do you and, think I could talk her into coming in here one night and uh, talking about her new book? Oh, yeah, I think she'd love to. And, and she loves talking to people. She does a lot of workshops. And one of the things that's great about the book is it's very practical. There's a lot of, of uh, techniques in it um, that are, you know, really accessible. And, and it, it, there's a lot of – it comes quickly, and it's a really wonderful way to explore very psychedelic places – Totally on the natch, free, the natch. no hangover, no cost. <laughs> well, tell, tell her I'm looking forward to it, and I'll get a hold of you offline and uh, in touch with her, and, and we'll uh, set something up. I think that'd be great, great fun. So Excellent. Well, it's been wonderful to be back and to see you again and see you doing so well and uh, to meet uh, a, a lot of your, your great crew here. Same here, and, and we'll put this out in a podcast next week, and then uh, I'll be in touch, and we'll do this again. So uh, Excellent. Thank you, and thank everybody for being here. And until next week, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Lorenzo. See you guys. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Hopefully, you'll take those closing words of Eric's to heart. Well, we've talked about this here in the salon before. I think that the, well, I think that the rap that Eric just gave is the best summation of the psychedelic situation that I've heard in a long time. In one of the talks that we've heard from Terrence McKenna, he also talks about people who take one small dose of LSD and then claim to be a psychonaut, when, in fact, they are merely psychedelic tourists. But a true psychonaut, someone who is dedicated to further exploring the depths of consciousness, is a person with a plan, and a plan involves a well-thought-out practice. My friend Myron Stolaroff was a person like that, and he combined a 40-plus year exploration of LSD with an equally intense meditation practice. And from what I could see, Myron was as close to a fully enlightened human being as I've ever encountered. So I hope that you'll review Eric's closing message and then solidify your own practice of consciousness exploration. Now, I'd like to close today's podcast with a brief tribute to one of my heroes, a true giant from the 60s right up to the present. I'm talking about Paul Krasner, who died yesterday. He was 87 years old, and while you may not recognize his name, I can assure you that his influence on American culture was quite literally orders of magnitude more than that even of Terrence McKenna. You see, the underground press in this country basically began with the Realist magazine, 
which Paul founded and first published from the offices of Mad Magazine. Now, The Realist began as a nationally distributed magazine in 1958, and it continued off and on until 2001. Over the course of its existence, The Realist featured many up-and-coming writers such as Norman Mailer, Ken Kesey, Kurt Vonnegut, and Joseph Heller. But back in the 60s and 70s, for many of us, The Realist was sort of the adult intellectual version of Mad Magazine. If you were young and alive back then, well, you most likely remember seeing some of the Realist projects, like the uh, bumper sticker that said, Fuck Communism, (laughs) and uh, the wonderful Disneyland Memorial Orgy poster, and, of course, their over-the-top satire about the Kennedy assassination that was so gross I don't even want to think about it again. (laughs) But it was funny, uh, at least if you enjoy satire. Paul Krasner once said that English was his second language, but laughter was his first. And I'm here to tell you he made me laugh many, many times. But more than that, he also became a really good example for many of us who are now old guys, because even though he was right in the middle of some really exciting times in the 60s and 70s, and, well, he hung around with some truly heavy-duty characters, he nonetheless survived long into old age. An obituary that I read this morning closed with this. I asked him how he'd been able to survive while so many of his contemporaries, like Timothy Leary, Lenny Bruce, Ken Kesey, Terry Southern, Hunter S. Thompson, Allen Ginsberg, and most notably his fellow co-founders of the Youth International Party, the Yippies, and co-conspirators in the Chicago 7 conspiracy trial, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, Well, all of those people now have died. How did you survive? Simple, he said. I've never taken any legal drugs. (laughs) And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.